Bienvenidos to the Conquistadors Trilogy Podcast with your host, Dennis Santanella. Book One, Brothers and Kings by Dennis Santanello. Copyright 2022. Chapter 3. Bonham Poma saw it all. Eight months of torture finally drew to its inevitable end. Six guards surrounded Altawalpa. They forced him to stand up, his face smeared with blood. They slapped him and spat in his hair. His wrists swelled, and the guards heaved more rusted chains onto him. Then they escorted Altawalpa to the square. The crowd moved from the temple steps. Then the drums blared. The guards forced Altawalpa down and shoved him to his knees and the square filled with screaming souls. The Pizarros gathered, as did the Almagros. Valverde showed off the Bible and marched with it, holding it up to the sky. His face was filled with hatred. He blessed himself more times than he could count while standing in reverence behind the cross. The other friars had joined him. They walked single file towards the square and took their seats. Then Valverde sat and hastily wrote on a piece of parchment. He drew several lines at the bottom. About twenty men looked over Valverde's shoulder. After he scribbled together the last paragraph, he drew several lines at the end. Valverde then handed Francisco the quill, and Francisco carefully signed, as did each of his brothers. Almagro, Diego, Soto, and a dozen more signed as well. The signers immediately became members of the jury. They sat on wooden chairs and assembled. Then the trial commenced, and Valverde took the stand. Atahualpa Inca, Valverde began. You are hereby charged with the following counts. Wamampoma shook his head, and Valverde continued. Atahualpa Inca, you are accused of conspiracy to the crown and the holy Catholic Church for attempting to injure. You are also accused of high treason and perjury to the estate of King Charles and the appointed governors of New Spain by knowingly withdrawing secrets, thereby causing severe and insufferable damage to us in our sacred mission. Altawalpa stayed silent and still. His servants looked on grief-stricken. They knew there was only one outcome. The executioner smiled and sharpened their swords. The trial continued. Almagro seemed to take the greatest pleasure. The sky had filled with clouds. What little light left came in from the broken stone pillars and shone through the shadows. Valverde addressed the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, how do you find? The Pizarros and Almagro sounded, and one by one gave their judgment. Guilty. 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 Guilty! The rest of the jury went silent and merely nodded their heads. Atahualpa Inca, you are hereby charged with high treason. May God have mercy on your soul. But before Atahualpa could yell his last defiant cry, Three Spanish soldiers plunged their swords into his back. Altawalpa's blood poured. 
They stabbed him a dozen times more for good measure. Atahualpa fell face down into a pool of his own blood, and the crowd watched in utter shock. It happened so quick the Incas thought they were dreaming. They cried and shrieked and prayed and sulked. Wamanpoma held his head in his hands and convulsed. He looked again, but it was true. Their king was dead. Their great king, Atahualpa, was dead. Their world had turned upside down. A mass exodus followed as Inca after Inca fled Catimaca. They headed for the dense jungle. The Spanish gave chase, but only momentarily. The Inca cries echoed and could be heard throughout the entire Andes. When the execution was over, a small group of Incas requested to possess Altualpa's remains. They pleaded to Francisco several times. Surprisingly, Francisco accepted their request, but he ordered his men to follow the group. And another day drew to a close. I watched about a hundred Incas gather and mutter their prayers out in the open. They gathered near Altualpa's corpse and prayed for hours. With heavy cries, they wailed and recited a lilting song. When the song was over, they laid Altualpa's corpse across a wooden bed of planks and elevated him up. The Incas poured a powdery white substance and covered the corpse from head to toe. Then they took a roll of cloth and began to wrap the corpse, weaving layer after layer, and then tightening each Passover. After another prayer, they wrapped the corpse entirely, and the mummified corpse was blessed for the final time and encased in a wooden box. As the sun went down, our men returned to the fires and drank senselessly. In the morning, the box disappeared. There wasn't any reproach from either the Pizarros or Amagros, and indeed it was absurd to think what a corpse could be capable of doing besides corpse-like things. Still, I wondered what the Incas did to it, where they hid it, and what they were hiding. But after seeing the corpse in full and seeing the flies gathered among it, my hopes were they secured in a secluded place and that it would eventually escape my memory. I peered over to examine the Inca faces. They were still gray and solemn, and there was no telling what they were thinking. Then, like any day, I had lost sight of them and gave them little thought. In Vilcabamba, Manco found 50 other Incas gathered around a sacred stone. Cusco was another 50 miles away. For Manco, Cusco was his only thought. He saw it in his followers' eyes that they could not thrive alone in Vilcabamba. Cusco had to be preserved, else the Spanish would annihilate it the same way they did Catimaca. The Incas waited for the shaman to arrive. They grew impatient and prayed, but all were afraid. Manco held Tito Cusi in his arms. 
there was no shaman, and many felt that they weren't going to see him for a very long time. For days on end, Manko did not sleep. The only thing he ate was the leaves of a cocoa plant. His eyes were always open, and his hands trembled. And every minute, he turned his head to see what was behind him. After a week, Manko looked very strained. After another week, he looked half dead. For Cora, each day got worse. For several days, she hadn't talked to Manko at all. There was no reason to. She simply did not know what to say to him. Although she loved her husband very much, Cora knew that Manko was timid and quiet about certain matters that were beyond his control. She also knew that saying needless words to him wouldn't amount to any useful conclusion. So she stared at him in silence. But as the weeks passed, it was clear to Manko that her assurance was dwindling. Then one day, Manko saw a familiar face appear from the stream. It was Wamampoma. His face was grim and filled with pain. He made his way down the ledge and told the events to Manko, and Manko cried and fell to his knees. Wamampoma clutched Manko's whole body and tried to stop him from shaking. This isn't happening. This isn't happening, Manko whispered. But it did happen, and deep down, Manko knew it was true. He tried not to think, but he failed, so he felt. Then he remembered the vision, the vision of when the world went cold. The last vision he shared with Altawalpa and the shaman. He repeated the words, the all too familiar vision, now all too real, Apachacute. They killed him, said Wamampoma. They killed him like a llama. Wamampoma handed Manko a small piece of stone. I found this, he said. Manko examined the tiny piece of stone. It was a square with carved notches on its top. It was a black rook. It was Sardina's missing piece. Do you know what this means, Manko? Manko shook his head. Does it mean... Again, Manko shook his head. And with that, Manko clutched onto the chest piece, placed it in his carrion pouch, and moved away. In the afternoon, Manko gathered his followers and commanded them to press on. He led them down a new trail. They crossed streams and waterfalls and dense, dark jungles. Days went on. They rested when they could, but most of the time, they trudged. For another week and a half, they trekked through the same Vilcabamba jungle. And in all that time, Manko didn't say more than two words. All he thought about was Cusco. Then Manko ordered Wamanpoma to take control of the group. Take them to Cusco, Wamanpoma. It shouldn't take more than a couple more days. Warn the royal court of these spirits. Warn the people. I shall return shortly. I promise. Wamanpoma bowed. Manko looked back to the jungle. All were shocked when they received word, but Manko knew it was the right decision. Then Manko kissed Cora and Tito Kusi on their foreheads, and he headed back to the jungle, with a bow and arrow in each hand.
the officials distributed our payment. My own fortune filled a small chest. It weighed about 30 pounds. If I were to return to Spain, I'd own five miles of land. I thought about my father. I wish he were alive to see it for himself. My father couldn't even dream of these things. He was a farmer and died poorer than any other man in Spain. But now his son could rule the entire world. Oftentimes I see my father's face in the full moon, and it always made me feel at ease. I pictured his bright red face, his soft snicker that led to a bumbling howl. I could hear him tell everyone the story of his victorious son. And oh, it would be a story to tell. Every soul would stare into the gleam of his blue eyes and would have to listen to his every word. Did I tell you about my son and his fortune? Yes, Sardina, you told me a hundred times. Care to hear it again? I savored the moment. It lasted for several nights. I slept in deep peace, and each morning I awoke with my fortune in my hands. And although it felt very much fleeting, I enjoyed every minute. A week went by, and another batch of Spanish men gathered into Catimaca. More men arrived another week later. Days after, even more men had joined. And with all of them, I could see a former vision of myself. The more Spanish faces I saw, the more I knew this land would never be the same. Many of the new men had brought their wives and children. They brought their books and tapestries. They brought their guitars and pipes. The women brought their white gowns, kirtles, and headdresses. And the children brought their toys, their dolls, and their wooden swords. It was beginning to look a lot like Spain. But of all these new arrivals, the thing that fascinated me the most was their tongues. From their speech, I discerned their dialects. I heard men from Seville and San Sebastian. Some were from Portugal. Some spoke with a slight slip of French, but it was all Spanish to me. And hearing it again made me think of the great power of the mother tongue. One morning, I saw a mother teach her daughters how to say certain words. The girls had a marvelous time repeating and correcting themselves, and I knew it wouldn't be long before they would master these words. For indeed, the language was our tool to command the Incas to perform our demands. One language needed to be in control. One language needed to dictate the motions. Of course, we learned the Incas' language too. The friars learned Quechua quite well but they merely used it to ask for daily essentials. Where food was to be found, where gold was to be found, and what tribes were lurking to ambush. That was all that was needed. Yet conversely, when it came time for the Incas to learn Spanish, the friars taught them everything. They taught them morality, ethics, and law. But most of all, they taught the Incas about our one true God. The friars then told the Incas that they were to forget about their own gods. They told them that their old gods were false and evil and were never to be prayed to again. And they stressed this every time with gestures to the sky 
and warnings of eternal damnation. It must have been a hell of a thing to tell someone that what they once knew and loved was false, but the friars persisted and stood by their truths. For the Incas who were willing to learn and succumb, the friars took them as their own sons and daughters. But to those Incas who took umbrage and resisted, they were tortured and burned. The friars kept things very simple, and for the most part, it worked very well. The more I thought of this, the more I realized how each man was lost in his own language, the language of the sacred, the language of fear. And again, I was reminded of my own language at the time, the language of gold. As my philosophical days waned, I tried to control my thoughts and waited patiently for them to subside, but they never truly did. The thoughts remained attached to me, and they came frequently as the tide. Then I remembered Soto's words. Don't think too much, Sardina, you're not very good at it. I knew he was right. So instead, I stared. I stared at the men, young and old. Those of high class separated themselves from those of lower class, and after a fortnight, it was apparent who was who. Although our men gave them glares and general looks of disgust, I took to the new men quite well. I enjoyed their fresh new excitement and energy. They gathered around me and asked me several questions. The rest of our men avoided these new men like the plague. I'll admit, their questions were inane and common, but my answers were the same. Where did you find the gold, Sardina? In the caves. Where are the caves? South of the stream. Where's that? After a while, I grew tired of answering their questions. I retreated to a remote, silent place to rest, but as the days passed, new rumors had emerged. Rumors, much like children, have no sense of when to stop, which often leads to false accusations, a false sense of reality, and other false things that eventually make you feel very old. And as ever, bizarre story after bizarre story left the men's mouths and swirled inside their minds. Cusco? What is this Cusco? It's a city. A city? A grand city. Where? I haven't a clue. What did you hear? There's gold everywhere. Everywhere! They say the city is only 50 miles away from here. They say the golden Catimaca is only a fraction of what we'll find in Cusco. We found enough already. No, we haven't. You wouldn't even believe the amount of gold there is in Cusco. What have you heard? Much of the same, but the city is greater and much richer than this land. Where is it? They said there's more gold than we can even imagine. They say these streets are paved with it. What the hell are we waiting for? This is a little too unbelievable. Katimaka was only a rumor, wasn't it? Indeed, it was. Upon hearing the rumors, the Pizarros took no hesitation. They questioned and tortured and put Gonzalo in charge. Gonzalo summoned the Incas for questioning. One by one, the Spanish gathered and whipped and lashed the Incas. Gonzalo asked the Incas what they knew about the new rumors. Those who fought were killed immediately. There was no forgiveness, 
no respite of mercy or recompense. There were only thirst and chops. Two days passed, but the Incas refused to give any information of any kind. Then Gonzalo remembered a thing that he forgot about, and soon again he smiled. He returned an hour later, and a dozen men carried the strapado to the foreground. The strapado was a tortured device made from wood. It was ten feet tall, and it worked like a giant pulley. On the end of each pull, the tortured would be hung either by his neck or hands, and then lifted up into the air. But before suspension, a heavy weight would be tied to the tortured's legs. And to make matters crueler, the entire device could be controlled by one man, provided in any way he felt. It was a marvelous contraption. Juan had built it, Gonzalo designed it, and Francisco approved it. But Almagro did not give in to the grand novelty, nor did his son. They thought it gratuitous and preferred the old methods of torture. Almagro looked all over to the crowd. He found Francisco and shook his head. You Pizarro sure know how to waste time. It's a spectacle, Almagro, said Francisco. No, it's a waste of time. You must see how it works first. You, of all people, must admire its craftsmanship. I know how it works. Stay for a while. Appreciate what it is. I will not. Just ask the right questions. And with that, Almagro spat on the ground and left the crowd. The men gathered the most untrustworthy Incas, and the spectacle began. The Spanish took one Inca in particular and lashed him a dozen times. They forced him to talk. The Inca refused. Then they pushed the Incas across the square and led him to the strapado. Tie him up, Gonzalo shouted. They took the Inca and tied his hands behind his back. Then they took the rope and tied the Inca up on the strapado. And up he went, five feet in the air. The Inca dangled and screamed. The Spanish watched and waited for their orders. The translators gathered and stared up at the helpless Inca. And Gonzalo commenced the questions. What is this, Cusco? The Inca yelled out in hard pain. The translators shook their heads. They say he doesn't know. Gonzalo took out his sword and yelled incoherently. Then he erupted towards the Inca and held the point of his sword an inch before the Inca's nose. What is this Cusco? Gonzalo grabbed his whip and lashed away. What is it? The whip dripped with blood. The Inca coughed and spat. Then he repeated a phrase and all turned to the translators. Translate! Translate, you dogs! Gonzalo screamed. He says it's a city. Then where is it? The Inca gave no reply. Then Gonzalo ordered the men to tie a cannonball to the Inca's feet. The weight dipped the Inca about a foot down. The Inca screamed again. The men held on to the cannonball. Gonzalo did as well. Gonzalo stared at his men. Then he turned to the Inca. Tell us more, dying Inca. Where? Are these rumors true? Where is it? 
The translators repeated the question, but still, the Inca gave no reply. Where? Where is this Cusco? What are they hiding? The Inca closed his eyes and turned his face. Gonzalo gave the Inca a final glare and dropped the cannonball. The Inca's body split in two. His blood spilled and splashed all over the square. And minutes later, the surviving Incas talked and told the Spanish everything they wanted to hear. So we made our way to Cusco, our new obsession. We followed the trail for 15 days. The sun intensified during the morning, and at night, rainstorms pummeled the land. The heat grew dense. The air turned moist and suffocating. And the more we trekked, the more I felt the entire earth cave in and descend into hell. From time to time, I eavesdropped on conversations of the Pizarros and Almagros. They still hated each other. Why are we listening to these goddamn rumors? said Almagro. Then what do you suggest we do? Stay in Catimaca? That's ridiculous, said Francisco. This jungle all looks the same, said Diego. There's more, said Juan. There's more, there's more, Almagro mocked. Haven't you Pizarro's had enough? More days lingered. The jungle never stopped. Then one day, Juan Pizarro patted me on the shoulder. He took my armor and placed about two pounds of gold in my hand. Then he gave me a smirk. He told me to join the other men at the far end of the camp, and I followed him there. I found ten other men gathered around a burning fire. One of those men was Gonzalo. Then Gonzalo pointed east with his sword and shouted out our orders. My eyes were focused to Juan. He seemed divided amongst his thoughts and his body, and that smirk he gave me reminded me of the smirk his brother Francisco gave me on the beach that fateful day. Naturally, I didn't expect much from Juan. He never said more than two words to any man, and for many, including his brothers, he represented a wise old man trapped inside a twenty-year-old's body. I stared at the lump of gold in my hands. Then Gonzalo raised his voice. All you men are gathered here to do one thing, and that is to find where the Incas are hiding. Find them, capture them, and hold them for questioning. Go in pairs, go alone. Just find them and report back within two days. Understood? The men nodded and disappeared, and likewise I went alone. I found most of the jungle eerily peaceful. Stretches of miles with not a soul in sight might sound like madness to others. I found it welcoming. The mission sounded vague, but I followed its logic. The essence was to find the Incas who retreated from Catimaca. The more Incas we'd capture, the more guides we would have for our journey to Cusco. On the first day, I trekked five miles. They were hard miles. I slashed my way through vines and brushes, and my armor weighed me down. I sweated from my head down to my toes. I hacked and dug and forced myself on. Most of the time, I wish I was back in the mountains. At least in the mountains, I had a breeze from time to time. 
I rested it on a moss-covered rock. There was a hum in the air, and the symphony of insects and bats rushed in sporadic bursts. While I rested, I itched and scratched at my skin until I bled. The insects fell into my pupils and stayed inside my eye. I searched around the top of the trees and wondered if the Incas were waiting to ambush me with spears. Then I stared at my sword and saw how dull it had gotten. If there were ever time for an ambush, it would have been then. I took off my armor and headed off north. For another three miles, I didn't see a soul. As night approached, I heard the rumblings of approaching storms. When the rain fell, I took shelter beneath a giant cedar. I drifted into dreams and heard the sounds of dying things. And the next day I awoke and felt sweat pour through my entire body. On the second day, I felt much more aware. Everything seemed much more immediate. Then I found something on the ground. It was a small, smooth gemstone that was bright blue. I kept it and never showed it to anyone. Not even Soto. I studied every centimeter of that gemstone and tried to piece together its story. An hour passed. I heard footsteps. I waited for them to dissipate, but they didn't. Then I yelled, Who's there? Who's there? It was one of our men. He put his fingers to his lips, pointed to the trees, and showed me a sharp Inca spear. We approached a nearby tree, and I knew the man was right. I looked up to the tall cedars, but I didn't see a thing. Then the man pointed left to the kapok trees. Mako looked on from up top a tall kapok tree. He saw two Spanish soldiers approach the stream, but they were too far away. Then the soldiers disappeared. Mako's men primed their bows and waited for the Spanish to draw closer. He sharpened the point of his arrow with a blade of steel he stole from Katimaka. Then he fumbled the blade and it dropped a hundred feet down to the canopy. His men grew restless. They wanted to scream, but Manco ordered them to keep silent and still. Then they heard the Spanish horses. The land tumbled and shook. The sounds continued. Manco signaled to his men, and they primed their bows. But to Manco's horror, his men fired too soon. The Spanish recovered and retaliated with bowmen of their own. Soon the loud and fiery booms of the Spanish hand cannons shattered the air. Manco's men dropped from the trees and fled. Manco too dropped from his tree, and he landed square on his wrist. He stumbled to his feet and sprinted, but before he could make ten paces, the dogs caught up and tackled Manco to the ground. A minute later, the Spanish broke the dogs off Manco's body. He screamed an ungodly shrill, and blood covered his entire face. At dusk, the Spanish gathered back to camp. The Pizarros came to the head of the line. The Amagros joined soon after, and when they saw what their men had caught, they smiled with delight. Another group of Incas wailed. We chased them. They raced off in many directions. They hurried down the stone steps, and we cut them off at the end of the stream. The dogs rushed forward, and we followed their barks. Then we followed Manca Inca, the brother of Altawalpa. I thought he was dead at first, to be perfectly honest. 
His eyes were wide and white. They flickered uncontrollably. I put chains on his wrist. But when I turned him over to uncover his face, I knew I had seen him before. I called the men forward. The bizarros appeared a minute later. One by one, they patted my shoulder. They surrounded Manko, called off the guards, and stared at his battered face. The men managed to get Manko to his feet. He looked like he was about to die at any moment. We searched for the translators. When they had arrived, the bizarros ordered them what to say to Manko. Manko sputtered and mumbled out his words for long periods. I knew not what he said, and the translators were just as confused. But one truth had been uncovered. We had found our guide. The Spanish rested along the river stream. Manco slept, chained to a tree. Like Altawalpa, three Spanish guards chaperoned Manco and watched his every movement. And when Francisco finally made acquaintance with Manco, he knew for sure that he had found an Inca he could control. Manco was left with his thoughts. He thought about Cusco, the city that he once knew. He thought of his brother Altawalpa and all that happened in Catimaca. But then another thought resurfaced. It horrified him. The thought was of the royal court of Cusco, and who would they put in charge to replace Altawalpa? Certainly he was in line, but not before Tupac Hualpa, a brother he barely knew. But had the elders named a king already, or had they named someone else? Manco hadn't a clue. It was an agonizing thought. Manco doubted and fretted. He pretended that if he closed his eyes hard enough that he would awaken from his nightmare. He shivered in the wind and he bit his lips until they bled. But when he opened his eyes and saw the chains wrapped around his wrist, he cried. The thoughts raced in his mind once more. Surely his people knew the Spanish were approaching. Surely they knew all the events of Catimaca. Why hadn't they attacked already? What were they waiting for? But then Manco soon realized another horrid thing. Perhaps the most horrid. He was on Spanish time now, not his own. He would enter into Cusco as their prisoner. And there was nothing he could do about it. With Francisco at his left, Almagro at his right, and myself and Soto behind him, Manco led the way. We continued to endlessly march through the ungodly long and dangerous swamps, but by then we were used to it. We were used to the unbelievably dreadful heat and the dense rainfalls that drenched down sporadically. They used to come before and after each storm. The sounds and shrieks and shrills and swarms resurfaced in echoes. But by then, we were used to all of its horrors and we tamed all these things with thrust and hacks from our swords and with the obsessive cadence of our boots marching forward. We were wary, but not at all afraid. After a while, we hardly noticed the jungle sounds. We had finally embraced its misery and whole, and each man had his share of perverse enjoyment. I stayed close to the front of the line and periodically I talked to Soto and asked him questions. He did his best to ignore me. Then he answered out of pity. 
Are we close? Keep your eyes open, Sardina. We should be there by now. Can't you even doubt, Captain Soda? I've learned not to doubt, Sardina. How's that even possible? It's possible. Doubting only causes pain. But no one sees that pain. From the days after Katimaka, Soda became even more reticent. He only talked to the Bizarros and Almagros. That night, I set up the board and accepted any challenger who dared, but most nights went uncontested. Then one night, Soto had joined me. We set up the board and it felt like old times. His face looked terrible. He played black and didn't even mention, let alone notice, that his rook was missing. Make your move, Sardina, was his only response. We played one game. It was a very long one and I knew I had impressed him. I managed to pull off 20 moves. Though when I took Soto's bishop, I knew I had fallen into his trap. Afterwards, Soto took control of the game and cornered my king. And three moves later, he pinned me to a checkmate with a rook and pawn. You're getting better, Sardina. All in time. Then we cleared the board and Soto stared up at the stars. I knew this was my opportunity to ask him more questions. I ran through the questions in my mind. He probably answered them telepathically. What is this Cusco? What are we going to find? What will be of Kerimaka? What are we going to do with Manco? But neither of us said a word in all that time. We just looked up to the heavens, which were always too big, too incomprehensible and too beautiful for words. As the silence took over, I saw Soto's eyes flutter. He blinked hard and forced himself awake. Then after a while, Soto finally gave in and drifted into sleep. I kept an eye on him, but my attention fell into the great sky, and I gazed on and wondered. The billions of stars reminded me of God, the old God of my childhood, the high and almighty the one I once knew. But I must admit, the feeling had faded. Then I thought about talks I had with God when I was a child. Do like Christ, Sardina. Be like Christ. For he so loved the world that he died on a cross and came back to life. He is the Lord thy God. He is your exemplar. But since I left Spain, I hadn't heard from him at all. He seemed as vague and unimportant as an old forgotten beggar. Perhaps he was still there in Spain. Perhaps he was waiting by the docks, waiting for my arrival. And if that were the case, he'd have to wait for a very long time. A day later, we finally reached the city of Cusco. And my God, it was beautiful. We marveled in disbelief. Cusco was indeed the richest city of all the Indies. We knew it when we saw it. Old Francisco knew it too well, but the Incas knew it more. The city itself stretched about five miles wide. Wooden palisades and gates on either side surrounded it, and the roads were paved with great shiny slabs of stone. 
the palaces and temples stood tall and grand, and as promise, inside each room possessed a decorated array of glimmering gold. Karimako was grand, but Cusco was the dream of dreams that God himself wouldn't believe, and the light was marvelous. We were invited to the tops of the temple. As we looked down, I, along with every man, smiled at our prize below. The gold looked as if it were sprinkled all over the city. From my view on high, I studied the entire city and its people. There must have been half a million of them. There were craftsmen and poets, jugglers and mathematicians, the great citizens of the great Cusco. Then I saw the massive irrigation systems that ran from the center of the city and all through its perimeter. I saw Cusco's farmers, who toiled and sweated and grew crops and fed every soul. They were tired but proud, and I felt the utmost respect for them. For in them, I saw my father. This was an old city, and it was still very much the Incas. When we got back down, I felt more at ease. Francisco ordered the guards to unleash Manco from his chains, but he was still closely watched. Manco then introduced us to the members of the Inca royal court. To our surprise, there was already a king of mighty Cusco, though he was very small. He was a brother of Atahualpa and Manco, but a distant one. His name, they said, was Tupacahualpa and he seemed very lifeless. He appeared short and thin, and he looked very old. He was dressed in a golden gown, but his face seemed gaunt and growing pale by the minute. This Tupacoalpa resembled Atahualpa, only in facial features. He had the same staggering eyes and shoulders, and the same wide brown nose, but much of Tupacoalpa's expression seemed defeated, as if all the blood in his body was taken from him. His hands trembled, and from the moment I saw him, I immediately knew he wouldn't last very long. When the two Inca brothers met again, there was neither embrace nor acknowledgement. It felt strange, to say the least. Manco barely moved, and Tupacoalpa scowled in dismay. During the afternoon, we saw Tupacoalpa stand with his guards. The translator situated, and Francisco performed the generalities and customs with his usual booming face and bombastic expressions. But unlike Altawalpa, Tupac held no reservations. He accepted, succumbed, and bowed with each request. And afterward, we were told we could stay in Cusco as long as we liked. It felt too easy. It felt as if they were planning something. But the more I looked at Tupac's face, the more I realized we had stolen much more from the Incas than we realized. We stole not just their lands, but their souls. As for our men, they reveled in joy. They spent the following day exploring all of Cusco and its glory. And at nights, we sauntered, lost in the immensity of it all. We celebrated like damn fools. We did so because we struggled for it. We did so because we were at the height of the dream of dreams. And we knew it very well.
We gathered wood and built fires, and we drank to our heart's content. The man handed over wine that was saved for two years, and in a matter of three hours, we drank every bottle. We're in heaven, boys. Heaven at last, the men cried. I couldn't argue. I kept to myself. Towards dusk, Juan Pizarro approached me and invited me over to his camp. I followed Juan, and he led me to the family fire where all the brothers Pizarro had commiserated. I felt honored. We ate chicken, llamas, and steers, and Inca delicacies of stews and soup. I felt like a distant friend of the family, perhaps a bastard infant. I bowed and curtsied and joined the brothers Pizarro. Gonzalo glared. Hernando sighed. Juan was too drunk for words. And Francisco smiled. I thought Francisco would bring up the time on the beach and his grand gesture and promise. But instead, he merely gazed into the fire and the blackness of the night and ate what the servants had brought him. Not far away, I saw another fire consisting of the Amagros and their cohorts. Their fire was much larger and brighter. As the night progressed, Hernando began to tell a story about his childhood. He told the tale of how Francisco used to beat him with his own shovel. Hernando nervously laughed. He probably thought of that memory every day he lived. Then Francisco dictated the conversation and told his own story. The story of an illiterate man who was now the richest man in all the land. It was an entertaining story, albeit a little long and cliche. I looked over to Gonzalo. It was clear that he had other things on his mind, primarily the women, and one in particular. His eyes were fixed on Cora, Manco's wife, who he had asked to dine with us. She did not stay for long, but during that time, I saw that internal lust in Gonzalo's eyes as he gazed at her. I looked at the Almagro's fire again, and to my surprise, I saw Soto's face. It took me a while to understand why he was there. Then I remembered Soto's inherent loyalty. It was with Almagro that Soto had first entered into the new land, and it was on Almagro's ship that he arrived on the coast. It made logical sense, though I kept wondering what he would do next. Then Juan interrupted and stared at me with drunken eyes. What are you looking at, man? He asked. Nothing. Nothing in particular. Juan gazed over the Almagro fire. Then he spat and finished his wine. You see those men at that fire? Those over there? Yes, I see them. They're assholes. Bastards. All of them. Greedy, stupid little pigs. That's all they are. I merely nodded. Staying mute and respectful worked in the past. I knew it would work this time. Then Gonzalo joined the conversation. If it were up to me, I'd kill them all now, he said. It's not up to you, thank God, Hernando retorted. There was a lull. Then Gonzalo turned to Francisco. Have you come to terms with them yet, Francisco? Not yet. What are you waiting for? 
Now is not the time. We are still guests of this city. What does that mean? It is not ours yet, said Francisco. This Inca king they have now is pleasant and peaceful, yes, but he's not the king his people need. What are you suggesting? It's already done. You needn't worry. Most of his brothers remain confused, but I could follow Francisco's twisted logic step by step. Francisco was right. It wasn't our city yet. It felt still very much the Inca's city, and its king, Tupacualpa, although not as threatening and powerful as Altahualpa, was a man Francisco found hard to control. He needed to be replaced immediately, and his successor would have to be a man whom Francisco could easily control. After he's crowned, I'll discuss the terms with Almagro. Only then, said Francisco. Come now, drink some more. Enjoy yourselves. And so we did. We drank and sputtered and slurred down our private little hells. The next day arrived. The dream was still very much real, but there was an odd silence. The sky turned red with no breeze at all. I went through the events in my mind, but the reflection lasted too long, and that horrible silence followed. Then I looked at Francisco. He merely nodded at me and ordered me to guard the temple steps. Then an interpreter whispered into Francisco's ear, and he turned to his brothers and nodded. A minute passed. Inca wails and cries rang out from one side of the city to the other. During that time, I finally pieced together what had happened, and I had remembered what Francisco had said at the fire. But how did he do it? Had he poisoned him? Had he paid men to stab him? Was it Diego? Was it Juan? Was it another man? Was it an Inca? Whatever it was, Francisco made sure it was quick. Then the Incas gathered along the square. They sobbed and trembled. The others stood still and quiet. Then all of our men gathered and patrolled the perimeter of the gates. Then a servant blew into a torn trumpet, and the citizens of Cusco knelt down to their knees. The king was dead. The servants brought Tupacoalpa's body and carried it down the steps. He wasn't stabbed. He wasn't decapitated. He was just dead. There were no visible wounds. The Inca royal court members said he died in his sleep. Immediately, the Inca servants wrapped the body in cloth and held the vigil. They sang a wilted prayer. The wails and sorrows continued. Some said he was poison. I agreed with the theory. He looked rather ill to begin with. In the evening, the Pizarros entered the temple, and the negotiations began immediately after. The time had come. The time to choose a new king. And there was no question who it would be.
and there was no question who it would be. Eh, we kind of know who it's going to be, but we'll leave that to chapter four. Anyway, I'm Dennis Antonello. Welcome to the Conquistadors Trilogy Podcast. Today, I want to talk about something that's, it's not true to my heart, but it's true to my reality, and that's gambling, G-A-M-B-L-I-N-G, gambling. Now, for me, it seems to be, seems, okay, seems to be a human essential to gamble, why is it essential? Okay, I understand not everybody gambles. But everybody has a variation of gambling or, or betting or seeing what works and what doesn't if we get get down to its elementals. And why do we human beings do this? Are we that are we just that greedy? In a sense, yeah. Um it is human nature. It, it, we do have some psychopathy <laughs> in our monkey DNA. I mean, look at chimps. They're, they're fucking evil. Do they gamble? A little bit. They, they test the elements. I mean, you know, sometimes they test uh, what ledge goes to where, and sometimes they really fail. That's a little bit of gambling. I mean, in... <laughs> In a, not even in ancient civilizations, in, in ancient primordial times, there is a sense of wondering if this thing or this is going to happen and putting a wager on it, whether it be your life, money, some acquisition of wealth or commodities. We want to put a wager on, on our our bets, and our expectations. And it seems to me, while writing Conquistadors, that was just fundamental to any aspect of life. And why not put it into the characters? Now, on both sides, they're gambling. I mean, Altawalpa betted that the Conquistadors were going to just go away. If, if Altawalpa just gave them as much gold as they wanted... He betted on their trust, and he lost. He lost really bad. <laughs> but why do we gamble? Is it that we're just bored? In a sense, I think, but there's something more to it. And I think it's the, it's the justification of saying we're right about something. There's like a vindication of gambling that is so, I guess, self, self-imposing or, or, or self-elevating in that we're going we're gonna to bet on the Mets to win the World Series this year. And God damn it, they're going to do it. And hell, you know, if the Mets, if the New York Mets do win the World Series and you put in, I don't know, let's say you put in 50 bucks and you end up with 7000 by the end of October because they won the World Series. You're going to be very self-vindicated. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to have the high of highs. And it's, it's the chasing the dragon of gambling and drugs that is so human. 
I mean, even in religion, you know, the solemn, the solemn, universal psyche of spirituality, there is an element of gamble. (laughs) There is an element of a leap of faith, of putting your chips down and betting it all that there's going to be an afterlife. (laughs) That's a big fucking bet, man. (laughs) What do you think of it? Gambling that there is an afterlife that you have vaguely no idea about you have a collective consciousness of of people telling you dreams and fantasies and personal experiences that might be true to them but you have no physical evidence whatsoever of yourself unless you had one you know that's a huge gamble gamblers are humans and humans are frail and stupid at a lot of times. But but also, there's a sense of pride in gambling. You know, you're putting your money on the line, you're putting your life on the line, and there's got to be a payoff. And that payoff, that money shot, it's, it's the most satisfying... When it happens, it is the most satisfying thing and feeling you could have but all all those feelings are very fleeting they don't they don't really last 30 years unless you hit it really big (laughs) and the conquistadors hit it really really big but that's the thing of gambling you know that's why people go on the slots they want that big feeling moment because they see it they see it periodically strategically by the casinos a slot machine is programmed to hit at a given time every day but you don't know which one is on it so that's how it works every time you go to a casino on the weekend or even on a weekday someone's gonna hit a jackpot and 99 other people are gonna say damn it i wish it was me But personally, when I think of gambling, and I, I and I really think of it, I was uh, I think I, my family just has a pedigree of gambling, going back to like 1919. I mean, <laughs> on both sides too. My mother, heavy gambler. My father, he was a farmer. All farmers are gamblers. <laughs> You know, you're betting on nature to cooperate. <laughs> uh, but also, my grandfather, on both sides, in the American side, heavy, heavy on the horses. And on the Filipino side, heavy on the horses, and, yeah, heavy on the cockfighting. <laughs> my grandmother was a gambler. You know, she spent her whole... <laughs> She spent our whole paycheck sometimes on trips to Atlantic City on the weekends. It's it's wired into me. While writing this chapter, this book, this whole trilogy, I came down to that fundamental truth that we're all gamblers in one way or the other. Now, how does 
gambling relate to the sto- uh, chapter that we just read? Well, on both sides. Altawalpa, he gambled that the conquistadors would be trustworthy. And that was a real big gamble. He lost his life on that gamble. The conquistadors were as backstabby as backstabby can be. He lost big time. For Manco Inca, he gambled that he gambled his life to save Cusco, to distract the conquistadors as best as he could. And he lost too. He got captured. But for the conquistadors themselves, they not only betted that they would conquer Catimaca, which they did, they wanted more. It was like they won a little mini jackpot on a slot machine. A mini jackpot. Not the mega, not the supreme. A mini. And that's what kept them going. (laughs) Gambling just, in my estimation of the world, in my experiences, in my empirical statistics of seeing things, I see things through a gamble. I see things on... You know, throwing the dice and seeing what happens. And it seems to be universal. It really does. I've been to the Philippines. Gambling in the Philippines is the same as gambling in New Jersey. I've been to pubs in London. And some some people bet on high school teams in America. <laughs> on lacrosse. <laughs> you know, Rompapo versus... St. Isidore's. I'm taking St. Isidore's plus two. And these people don't even know the rules to lacrosse. But, yeah, that's it. It's all a gamble. You're either going to crap out or you're going to come home and play that favorite song while you're driving down the highway. Gambling... It's just a part of human life. Anyway, you've been listening to the Conquistadors podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Santanello. And for the next episode, we'll go to chapter four of Brothers and Kings. And we'll see how this gamble turns out. Till next time.